All right, all right, welcome back to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the Deputy Director of High Performance West, coach at University of Houston, and joined by my good buddy and colleague, John Marcus. John, how are you? I'm great. We're back. We're here to give the people what they want. And I've actually been wanting to get Lauren Fleshman on the podcast for a long time. I mean, coach, athlete, mentor, business owner, advocate, impresario, writer, and just all out awesome. She She's the definition of a polymath. And I, akin what Steve and I try to do to live up to her standard of excellence as she said. So now she can kind of tell us how she got where she is and lead the way and shepherd Steve and I to that next level. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Well, no pressure or anything. I mean, geez, I gotta, <laughs> I'm shepherding, I'm shepherding. Um, okay. Well, let's see. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. It is a privilege. Um, and as I know, we'll get into at some point, it's also a little bit intimidating uh, because I feel a little bit like I'm representing a, a larger group of women <laughs> in a way, which is an interesting dynamic. Um, just me, I can only speak for myself and my own experiences, but I, I know that at some point in this conversation, I'll want to get into talking a little bit about women in coaching as well. Um, but I just a disclaimer, I'm not an expert in women on coaching and I'm not an expert on women coaches, but I, uh, I can really only be an expert on, on me and my experiences. Well, yeah. you well, know let's the- talk about your experience then. Yeah. Yeah. So I have come to coaching from a professional athlete side of things, um, which I, you know, as an athlete, I was a little bit turned off by professional athletes that became coaches and heard very mixed reviews um, on how that could go down. A lot of times you'd hear stories like, oh, this coach just trained their athletes the way they operated when they were an athlete. That seemed to be the most common limitation was uh, an athlete become coach can really only train athletes like themselves. Um, And I saw that as like a potential problem for sure, because you really only have a case study of one when you have approached the sport as an athlete first. And I've, I've have 12 years of professional running experience and then essentially college and high school were to some degree fairly professional because I was doing it at such a high level for so long, especially college at Stanford. Um, but one of the things I had going for me that made stepping into coaching less intimidating was having worked with a variety of coaches and a variety of training philosophies um, some that were really heavy on the science, some that were a little bit more woo-woo, some that uh, had different mixtures of the two. And over time, I found that I started to forge my own ideas um, and started to feel a little bit comfortable, you know, dipping my toe into it and then very gradually stepping more strongly into coaching. And then I think it only took about three years before I was willing to call myself a coach, even though I had been <laughs> doing it that whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> my first coaching experience was actually sort of handed to me by Stephanie Bruce. She was coaching, um, coached by Brad Hudson at the time living in Eugene. And I was coached by Mark Rowland at the time living in Eugene, just transitioning from being coached by Vin Lanana. And, um, she coached this group of Thursday night runners, uh, rec- runners in the community. And, um, they became called the flyers and, Every Thursday, they'd come for a work, get their butt kicked, basically. And they varied in distances from 10K to marathon. And there were about 25 to 35, depending on the day, that would show up. 
and this team had been passed from pro athlete to pro athlete kind of every year. And I don't even know the full lineage of the group, but it's kind of interesting. And then it passed from Stephanie to me when she moved to Flagstaff. And so I was terrified to coach this group of people because I didn't have any coaching experience. But they gave me my first taste of what it was like, the rewards of seeing people kind of like catch your fire and feel motivated um, to, you know, get them excited about the goals that they have to instill belief, um, to start sort of tinkering and figuring out what each athlete's strengths and weaknesses are and what language uh, running they speak, what their vocabulary is, how to get to their core. Um, and and that was captivating to me. And that was my favorite part. And um, I really I really do take an individual-based approach to coaching ever since that experience. And so on the positive side, I feel like I have really rewarding individual interactions. On the negative side, I don't know that I could co- ever coach a big group uh, again because it would just be so much time spent on every athlete. I'd have to totally change my way of coaching. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, as I look at my present and future, I really don't see myself at this time coaching big groups, but I really love coaching, you know, a small handful of, of people. So you've been coached by some of the, you know, most, I guess, for lack of a better word, famous distance coaches in, you know, North America in the last, you know, decade or two. What, you know, if you can, you know, attribute one takeaway from each coach within your, your lineage or, you know, mentorships of coaches as a professional and then, um, adopting it into your own coaching practice, what would that be for each era of um, coach that you enjoyed uh, running for? Uh, well, my high school coach actually isn't a professional coach, but he could have been um, or could be, I guess. He, hmm. the, the longer I've been in this sport, the more I realize how lucky I was, how dead on he was with some of the most important parts of training. Um and he did just a brilliant job of building our base, um, setting us up for long careers, and uh, getting us to fall in love with the sport. And so from him, I really took that mixture of enjoyment and hard work. And uh, every stage of the way, I, I think I've stood out in the training groups that I've trained with because I, I like carried a little bit of coached along with me and really tried to keep things a little bit goofy and fun. Um and then in college, I worked with Vin Lanana, and our assistant coach was Dina Evans, who is one of the women professional coaches out there uh, with the Strava Track Club. And she was our assistant coach at the time. It was her first year coaching. So I got to spend her first four years with her. And uh, Vin, was, Vin was a master at coaching big groups and getting you know the um, top athletes from various events to feed off of one another and create kind of like, um, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I guess more of like the environment mm-hmm. of, of champion of a champion. And, and so I watched, uh, our women's team wasn't as strong as our men's team at the time. We were good. You know, we were finished top five at the worst while I was there in cross country, but our men's team won pack tens in track. They won NCAAs multiple times. At that point, lowest point total ever. They were known as the machine, which I've seen there's been a resurgence of the machine at Stanford. Mm-hmm. But they would have the top 10K NCAA champion, 1,500-meter NCAA champion, working together as often as they could, overlapping as often as they could, even though you may think they would do very few things together. He went out of their way to make sure 
there were opportunities for them to be the, be together because his philosophy was if you put the best with the best, it will like multiply exponentially what they're capable of. They'll feed off mm-hmm. each other and they'll generate kind of this environment that spills over into other people. And that really rubbed off on me. And I had the privilege of working with him for years after after college. I worked with him first two years as a pro, and then I left for a year, and then came back and worked with him for two more years. And um, and it was during those times that I really started to decode his training philosophy rather than just following blindly, you know, um, mm-hmm. right. because I had to do so much myself, and I wanted, I needed to understand why I was doing what I was doing. Um, Can I put a, a quick yeah. pin in that? I'm going to interrupt you to go on yeah, a, of course. a fast tangent. Can you talk about that year, 2003, the machine year for the men and also the women, too, coming out and winning the um, the team title? I mean, Stanford sweeps NCAA cross, 2003. What was that like? Um, well, in 2003 cross, I was a grad assistant coach that year. Okay. okay. So 2002 cross was my last cross country season. And we were announced as winners, but then it turned out maybe three minutes later they said we were second which was totally brutal by the way <laughs> oh god <laughs> yes <laughs> um that was my senior year captain and we had never won even though we'd been number one almost every year we had never won so uh right. but yeah the, the men's team um you know being there for for both team killing it was extremely rewarding but most of my mind was on the women's team just finally right finally getting it done on the day and that was the first year that um dina evans was head coach of okay. that program and versus assistant coach it was also rewarding i felt like we kind of grew up together in those four mm-hmm. years and she took the reins as head coach and just knocked it out of the park right so that was really and cool. so you were helping dina assistant yeah. dina at the time as a graduate mm-hmm. right so yeah. what was that like your first year really okay you graduate your first year getting into coaching and being, you know, with Dina, someone you you and her grown up together and learned a lot with, and now seeing who were your teammates, but months before your graduation, now mm-hmm. stepping into this role and finally getting the quote unquote monkey back and winning the NCAA title of the team. Oh, it was great. I mean, it was it was weird though. It was, it was a little bit. I wasn't super involved as a coach in the gritty, right? The press. I mm-hmm. went on the runs with the team, mm-hmm. but I completely deferred to Dina. I wasn't interjecting in any way. And I was getting a lot out of it personally, right? Because I was getting ready for my first shot in the Olympic trials in 2004. So it was advantageous for me to hang around, which you see a lot of athletes do this in Olympic years. They'll stick around one more year to like maintain some consistency um, heading into an Olympic year. So I was you know, one of those people. And so there was a little bit of jealousy as it was coming together, I'm like, damn it, why didn't we get this done while I was there? <laughs> um, and it was also rewarding because I did feel like there were just seeds that had been planted during the years I was there by me and the women who came before me that we never really got that win ourselves. But it, some things just take a little bit more time to, to germinate and grow. And so it was, you know, I was grateful that it just happened that one year when I was able to see it versus taking another three to four years right. um, and not being there at all and just reading about it on the internet or whatever. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, <clears throat> to me, that's one of the more definitive years of NCAA country from a dominance of a team standpoint. Everyone points to the men's program, obviously scoring 24 points that also have to complement the women 
coming through and yeah. getting the job done. I mean, that's what makes that year from a machine standpoint uh, even more, you know, amazing in my mind. So thanks, Lauren. I, I appreciate that. that there was just something about that too that I just thought of, which was that was the first time um, that the women had had their head coach that was devoted oh, to mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. at least mm-hmm. since I had been there. It's possible that Beth Sullivan had that role the year before I got there, that she was head coach. I'm, I'm not sure. You'd have to check on that. But I know that during my time, that was the big difference maker between when I was on the team and the very next year was they had their own full-time head coach. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a lot of whining about that, uh, justifiably so during my time and of feeling like when I got uh, short end of the stick a little bit that the men's team worked with coach Lanana every day, day in and day out. And we kind of got guest appearances from coach Lanana. He mm. was still mm. very much in charge of our program, but we didn't see him every single time. We didn't feel the same connection and uh, dedication from him. Um, and this is nothing against him because it's very, 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 very common. In fact, like extremely common that you have a female assistant coach that does the majority of the emotional labor um, administrative labor for the women's team, but doesn't completely get all the the power and control to be viewed as like a legitimate leader. So sometimes it's, they're doing this extremely valuable work. um, But there's something different about the respect that is created, you know, from athletes to coach that, that woman or person is your coach, like is actually the coach. They're not just there doing all the work of a coach, but they have the title of the coach. There's no person above them pulling strings. There's nowhere for your imagination to go of like, who's really in charge. This is the person in charge. And so I think that just creates a lot better um, chance of success. And so often women's programs have the assistant coach, you know, and the men's programs have the head coach. And I think it's changing, um, which is good. It, well, I think that brings up a brilliant point, which is that labels and titles and uncertainty matter in this thing. So when we're talking about creating that, that like environment of champions, just being able to go to practice and know that the person who's there taking care of you is actually in charge, like has the title, has the label, and there's no doubts about it, probably does wonders for just that team chemistry and camaraderie of bringing everybody together on that same page when you think. Oh yeah. And I think I've read some stuff you've read about, or you've written about belief and the psychology of coaching and articles you shared. And I've often thought about that, you know, the, a lot of times what you're actually doing day to day matters less than how you feel about what you're doing day to day and having a dedicated coach for each men and women's team, or at least making sure if there's one coach for both, that both teams are getting the same treatment, you know, really makes a difference. Now, has that influenced your current coaching practice? Because you mentioned a little bit earlier how you you can return to a, a large group setting like the Flyers. And, you know, you just, you said you find a little bit more value or a little bit more engagement from yourself from that smaller, intimate coach, you know, coach the athlete bespoke one-to-one relationship. Yeah, I think it's, it's easiest to kind of stand with authority and um, and for me to feel legit if I know that I have the time and resources to truly devote to the people I'm working with. I'm not good at faking it, you know. Um, 
And I, I think I could coach a group, a, a recreational group that was whose um, commitment matched, uh, you know, what I could give that big group. But I couldn't. I don't think I could coach, or I wouldn't desire to coach a big group of elite athletes because if they're right. putting their life on hold for this, I don't feel like I could match their commitment. You know, with my style, my coaching style, which is getting very deep with each athlete. Um, I don't think I can match that with a big group and they'd see through it in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> so w- one of the themes that I'm kind of picking up here and that ties back to an earlier comment where you said that most elites kind of coach like they were coached, right? They, they train how they were trained and, and um, that is often the downfall of making that jump from elite athlete to elite coach. But in hearing you describe, you know, your high school coach, Vin, and I'm sure we'll get into others, but you're not only pointing out kind of what you took away, but you've kind of pointed out a couple of things where you're like, okay, I noticed this and it, it's not their fault, but maybe maybe we can do this in a better way, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I think that this point for young coaches is incredibly important because a lot of times we see mentors and we see, oh, I have to do it exactly how my mentor did it. And if I don't, I'm disappointing them. But it really in that mentor-mentee relationship, it's you're, you're trying to grow, take what they give you and grow beyond that. So I, I'm just curious how you decide, like how do you get to that point where you can sift through the good and maybe the things that need improvement on, on the coaches um, that you've experienced? Oh, it's, it's, uh, I know I'm a little better at it year by year. I just refine and I just try to have a little bit of grace with myself in the present time. The athletes I coach right now, if they went on to become coaches would just as easily be able to say things I did well and things I sucked at. I'm positive of it. (laughs) Um, so I think it's just part of the game. I, what you were saying about that process of disappointing your mentor or veering too far from your mentor, that hasn't been a problem with me for high school and college working with Vinlinian, also with Terrence Mahan, because by the time I started coaching, those were a little bit, they were just far enough in the past where they were like a little hazy. Um, whereas the most challenging thing for me with my coaching right now is that my most recent coach was Mark Rowland uh, from OTC Elite. And I had a lot of success with him. You know, I won a national title. I was qualified for Worlds and I finished that was at that best an American had ever done at that distance. Um, and it was, you know, it was very rewarding and meaningful. It felt like there was magic happening there. And so I have those training programs in detail from what I did during that time. And I want to be able to learn from them. And I definitely reference them and look, you know, when I'm writing programs for my athletes that have similar events. Um, but it's really difficult once you open that spreadsheet to then not get anxiety about um, the things that you're doing differently from it. It, at least that's what I find. I don't know if you guys have any experiences like that, but it's the diverting, you know, to, to have the courage to be like, this wasn't, it's not the program that was magical. It was the program as it was applied to me, mm-hmm. it, the specifics yeah. of my body and physiology, and not just that, but my body and physiology in that moment, which was the culmination of several years of my specific successes and my specific failures. Um, that unless I can recreate all those things for my athlete, which I can't, then the, the, there's there's no way applying this 
number by number is going to get me the same result. And so I kind of use that to free myself from it, but it's still hard because like, okay, person with 20 years experience and, and, and so, and it's a waste of time to like really look at it and dig in and try to, I don't know, figure out yeah, how I difficult. would like translate it. Yeah. Well, it's difficult. <laughs> I think I, I hear you struggling and I struggled with that before as well. And what set me free, Lauren, was realizing it's not a recipe, but it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And that's the big difference. It's a masterpiece. You go and look at it. It's an artifact. You go to the museum. It's like the Mona Lisa, whatever. It just is amazing. And as much as people want to try to copy and refine it, it's doing anyone who is involved in that creation a disservice. And yet, you know there's good stuff in there because it got you to where it got you. Like It wasn't yeah. just totally random. <laughs> so there has to be some type of methodology or some type of recoverability as well because you can repeat this because human physiology as we know is not that radically different from human being human being so i i see that juxtaposition and that that dichotomy that you're struggling with because you know it i dealt with that uh, you know as well um early on in my coaching career like you know having had a you know a, a seat next to Jerry and we was watching what the Bowen, you know, um, athletes were doing in the early 2010s. It was just like, wow, 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 this is the way to do it. And it took me about three, four years and actually kind of viewing myself more as a 800, 1500 meter coach and moving away from, because I viewed myself, my self efficacy was tied to cross country, 5k, 10k coach because those were my key mentors were Jerry and uh, Rob Connor at UP who's you know known cross-country guru so when I started to say well I'm going to be I'm going to get into this mile or 800 meter um, discipline and make that my own it kind of set me free and allowed me actually to coach better the longer stuff the 10k you know with Tara Welling and half marathon with her but I needed to create that identity separation to go say it's okay to go explore because I'm not going to muck up you know, their recipe or their pathway to success that obviously is still working so well. (laughs) Yeah. Now, once you put in enough years, at least for me, now I have my own spreadsheets of my own (laughs) training history for my athletes. So then you end up with the same sort of trap. Like you want to look back and look at those things and see what was working well, but still the idea is to improve. The idea is to get better. And so you don't want to replicate that that doesn't work. And the times when I am most tempted to go back to those spreadsheets and like, look, is when I'm trying to peak an athlete. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's go dig into these and find out what did I do for the 14 days prior. And, um, you know, and it's not to say that's not helpful. It is helpful. But yeah. um, I definitely feel more freedom to riff on things I've done in the past than I ha- was feeling yeah. riffing on things that my old coaches did in the past. That felt hard. Well, it's it's those times of doubt, right? That's why, because I've done the same thing all the time. Like when you're peaking someone, especially, you know, leading up to a couple marathons recently with athletes, like peaking for the marathon is the worst. So you you kind of have these doubts and you're like, oh, what did we do last time that worked? Or what did this person do? And it's like you're just searching and grasping for things that like give you a little bit of certainty mm-hmm. that isn't mm-hmm. there. And I yeah. think, you know, and I think that's part of the process of coaching is like there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to be kind of aware that, you know, the, there was no magic formula. And similar to you guys, like I remember, 
you know, when I was first getting into coaching, I'd, I'd look back at like Alan Webb's training logs and the stuff we'd been doing because I was like, Alan Webb was the man. Like, how can I know what's better than like the guy who ran 346? So, yeah. <laughs> and, and similar, like what freed me up was coaching women. Cause once I got into coaching women at a high level, like I had no one to look back on, right? Cause I couldn't look back yeah. at my own training. I couldn't look back at my training partners who I'd been working with. So it was like, okay, I, I've got to figure this out going forward. And it is really freeing to have that, you know, just that clarity of like, yeah, what worked in the past is information, but I don't have to become reliant on it. Sometimes I think about the early season races as such, like they're, they're what I aspire to be all year long. Like I, <laughs> this race where Mel Lawrence just ran at a, a meet at University of Washington through, and she ran 8.57, uh, first time under nine minutes, PR'd by six seconds. And just, it was mostly the way she looked doing it. Shalane Flanagan got two seconds on her with, I think, 1,200 meters to go. She kind of popped out in front and got two seconds on her really quick and then never got more than that. And they'll just powered and maintained that space and ended up second. And it was you know, just seeing the difference between how those two athletes looked strong all the way to the finish versus what the other athletes in the field were looking like, which is more how I looked indoors, <laughs> usually <laughs> during my career. Um, and I was like, wow, okay, she looked great. When I was planning her run up to this race, I was taking it day by day, tuning into my athlete. No, I was tuning into the athlete in front of me right now when I was planning her pre-race workout, when I was planning her last hard session, when I was looking at how many days out it should be. There are no hard and fast rules. Sometimes I do it seven days before. Sometimes they're last hard session six. Sometimes it's 10 days. And I never second guessed it because I was just in the flow with my athlete in the moment. And she ended up feeling great, ran well, and looked confident, which was one of the biggest breakthroughs, the way she just carried herself to the line. I was like, wow, okay, this is a big difference from how both she and I feel season when I'm looking back at other races, looking how I, how I tapered her coming in and I'm not actually looking at my athlete. Mm. Well, I th- yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, I, that's a huge point. I think the athletes pick that up too, right? Like when mm-hmm. we're, when we're a little, you know, unsure and, you know, go driving ourselves nuts a little bit before the championship peaking and trying to figure things out. I mean, even if we're not directly portraying it to our athletes, I think that can kind of rub off on them and create that, that vibe that isn't there in like early season meet. Mm-hmm. Or you do what I do and you just stop believing in peaking. (laughs) 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 I gave up believing in peaking a long time ago because, you know, honestly, for me, the mental construct of peaking just created this anxiety on my part and the part that all the work is now at this exact apex in time. And this is the only week you have to run, you know, the races of your life this year. And I think sometimes we invest too much psychologically in this concept of peaking because it's just a construct. We know that through habituation, the body can, you know, reach new levels of tolerance, reach new levels of, you know, capacity or skill or what have you. And so if we think of it, when I started to think of it like that, I got a lot cooler. You know, my hot system turned off, my cool system turned on. It's just like, hey, just do what you do, do what you do. And all I, you know, I started to develop the posture of all we got to do in the like three weeks before the big championship meet 
not screw up. Just make decisions that won't screw you up. Don't eat food you don't normally do. Eat. Don't go to Envy Massage for massage. Go to your normal masseuse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had that one. You know, don't uh, don't drink anything weird. Let's not do any work that's way too out of um, the ballpark that you've been doing. You know, oh, you don't feel good. You having a hangnail today? All right, do four two hundreds instead of six. No big deal. Just don't screw up. And for me, that that move got me away from that peaking anxiety, which is a very, a real thing. And you see it year in and year out because everyone wants to do well. They, like you said, Lauren, you know, rightfully so sacrificed and, you know, mortgaged their lives in some regards to do the thing called professional running, which, you know, there's no guarantee. I always say it's, it's like a casino, man. Everyone's out here throwing dice and hoping they get, you know, seven and 11, but most people just get snake eyes because it's, it's a rough, it's a rough bet. I was thinking when you were talking about the um, your new approach to tapering, I was like, yeah, that's kind of it's still um, it's still an approach to tapering, right? Like the, <laughs> yeah. the, bub- the, yeah. the putting the bubble wrap on is still uh, it's still like a, di- a difference in how you're going to be responding to things versus how you would be like uh, buck up, get the eight times the K down or whatever. Um, unless someone's limping around. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't actually know how you coach cause I haven't seen you coach, but that's putting my experience into your story. But, um, but as an athlete, I actually really always loved it when I could see my coach start to be protective of me, mm-hmm. as long as they weren't show, they weren't, um, showing cracks in their confidence, but it was more of just like, I was a, a I was a, a, like a prepared item. <laughs> I was a, I was a machine that was ready right. for a job and we just were trying to protect it. Um, that made me feel a lot better than the concept of, I have to get these last few workouts just right. Mm-hmm. Like I was still somehow building the machine. Um, mm-hmm. and so I always found tapering to be, I always felt confident and almost, it was funny to watch my coach squirm a little bit. <laughs> like, oh, make sure you're getting Make sure going to massage envy or whatever she said. Uh, Maybe feel cared for, which was nice. But maybe not every athlete is like that. Oh well, yeah. Again, I think it's how we deal cope with those anxiety and stresses. Because you're right, it's the not tapering, tapering approach. It's (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And every year, that's all you know. Always to me, right? You know, as you've experienced this, and maybe you can um, unpack this a bit here. We, you go into the USA meet or a, or a world championship meet, and everyone's, you know, stone cold killer, but walking on eggshells, you know, simultaneously. Because there's just so much at stake and so much on the line because there's been all this work in preparation and diligence on the part of athlete and coach for this moment. And you want to maximize the moment. How has, you know, your experience in that as an athlete and, you know, winning national titles and, you know, competing to high repute at the international stage colored now coming into those championship meets and preparing those who you guide for that moment and making the most of that moment? I try to do, I try to diffuse the moment more than anything else, because I feel like you have way more chance of screwing that up than, uh, than anything else. Basically as an athlete, if I just focused on executing, just doing what I was capable of doing and that was it. And then having this sly smile on my face, knowing that only five people in that race or so would actually be able to do that on the day. 
because there'd be at least three of them psyching themselves out. There'd be three of them overreaching, trying to do something miraculous they've never done before, like quote peaking and doing, you know, having the best performance of their life on that day, which is a ton of pressure. Um, there'd be somebody running injured, at least one person who would look strong, you know, in the call area, but they were actually broken. Um, someone would be mentally tortured. And so it really comes down to just five people. And so I always told myself, I'm racing five people. Um, and I really just need to execute what I'm capable of on the day, which is what every single workout, every cue session was, was show up, get a, get your job from your coach, get it done as close to your capacity as possible, and then leave. <laughs> and, <laughs> and a race is no different. And even the, the preparation, I, mean, I think about my, I think about race days, um, preparation for the race day, logical math. It's the same way I do their key sessions now. It, it takes the pressure off of me. Great. So like, oh, they need, typically they do a hard session on a Saturday, a long run on a Sunday, and they're ready to go again by Tuesday. So I don't have to think about like two weeks of, you know, buffing them out. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know, I, I guess I just focus on trying to con- convey that to my athlete. They can just go to the line with as little pressure as possible with something that feels they feel confident they can achieve. And I don't blow any smoke up their ass. I'm a huge advocate for getting rid of this, believing yourself shit, because (laughs) I find it to be one of the most destructive things when you're going into a race to be like, you just got to believe in yourself. You just got to believe in yourself, especially if you're talking about in the context of doing something they've never done before. Um, Because it, it really puts too much pressure on them that somehow it is their success or failure hinges on this amorphous idea of believing in yourself, you know? Um, And to me, that's a coach cop out. It's like, okay, you're, you're basically, you just handed that over to the athlete and said like, well, I did everything I could do. If you, (laughs) if you blow it, it's because you didn't believe in yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I feel like I, I'm not, I don't have some kind of resume where you can say, oh, well, her athletes have made, five Olympic teams and whatever I have the athletes that I've coached, um, had reasonable success with them doing well when it counts racing to potential when it counts. And Mm -hmm. that's all I can really ask for. Um, and I think that sometimes as fans, when we're watching something we think looks like a huge breakthrough and a miracle, it wasn't, it was just the realization of what the person was prepared to do. So I, knowing that I don't try to create miracles in my athletes. Then, you know, something I always encounter, whether I feel like we're well prepared or not as athlete and coach is race day anxiety. And, you know, I'm curious, have you encountered like race day anxiety to the point of like crippling race day anxiety, you know, in athletes you've worked with? And if so, what are some specific, you know, um, cues or conversations you've had to help diffuse that anxiety either in the moment or once you recognize as a limiting factor, you know, getting them ready so it's not repeated again and again and again to the point where it's not allowing them to manifest their potential on race day. Oh yeah. I think that there's um, one thing I've learned is that it's going to happen to every athlete and it might happen at least once a season um, where they're going to get too much in their head and they won't perform to their capacity on the day. The biggest approach that I take that I think works because it doesn't seem to repeat itself more than one time um, is I just treat it like, like anything else, like a poor tactical move 
or like they ate some new food the night before and, and got the runs and race day. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, you just, you, you did something that didn't get you the result you wanted um, and not make it some sort of big deal right. or, you know, just because it's in the mind doesn't mean we have to make it this mystical thing. Um, it's, Are you, am, it's am I understanding you right to, sorry to interrupt. Am I understanding you right to say it's, you view it as just more transactional. It's just a transaction. Like, Hey, drop this, move on. No big deal. Is that yeah, correct? Kind of. I just, I just okay. like, don't add an extra weight to it if it was a mental thing. And I think that as an athlete experienced, I had negative experiences from um, a coach kind of making it a bigger deal when it was a mental thing versus a physical thing. Mm-hmm. If it had been a physical thing that had held me back, it would have been approached as a, you know, okay, well, you you stayed on the rail too long and you got boxed in. So next time do this. It would have been, the, you know, an easy conversation. It would be right. over. Yeah, but easy when a mental yeah. thing, it was suddenly like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's a woo-woo and the things are in your head. And it's like, it's like, oh, my God. And then it becomes this really big deal. And then the more times in a row an athlete does that, because I spent a whole year um, all of 2006, I for races. I hated racing. Something that I'd previously loved was just torture for me all of a sudden. And I couldn't figure out how to get racing back for myself. And it was pretty frustrating. Um, and so eventually I started working with sports psychologists. So a lot of the things that I use on my athletes are things that I learned from a sports psychologist was I treat, I treat mental shortcomings like um, like an Achilles injury or some mm-hmm. their, you know, pulled muscle or whatever, mm-hmm. a tactical error. And we just, we address it, we come up with a few things to try next time and we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you've gotten really far down the path with an athlete, it does take some extra investment to help pull them out. And so what I recommend if you, if anyone listening to this has an athlete that's had a history of really struggling with pre-race anxiety is to dramatically reduce the expectations so treat it like they have just come off of a stress fracture and mm. you're just starting them back and create baby steps to start building confidence again. And once an athlete believes in, in that they will race with integrity, that they will are capable of doing the thing they say they're going to do, every time they do the thing they say they're going to do, it's like a it builds a brick of confidence. And then they're then they feel comfortable taking bigger and bigger leaps to what they think they can do and what they're willing to say they're going to do. Mm. But the problem athletes get into once they get a big mental block is they try to overcompensate and make up for it by like, well, next time I'm going to really do what I'm capable of, (laughs) you know, I call that the post race pity party. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's brutal. And so it's, and then if you're one of the takeaways from the sports psychologist I worked with Darren treasure, who, I don't work anymore, but he, um, he said when expectations don't equal reality, you get like a big mess. Um, and so as a coach, I just look at one of my main jobs is to make sure that expectations, um, as closely match reality as possible. Hmm. And if I have an athlete tell me I've run 950 and I want to run 925, I've learned my lesson now. Like if they say that, I'm like, look, I'm not be someone that like poops on your dream. I really feel that we should try for the, you know, 940s first. Right. And let's let's just take this first step and we'll go with, once we've checked that box, let's go from there. So put that stretch goal out there, but I'm not focused on that stretch goal with you. Right now I'm going to focus on this goal. Mm-hmm. Um 
which is another controversial thing. There's definitely people out there, and I understand the perspective. Think you should, you know, let that completely dry us um, on those things. But I also have learned from personal experience when I tried to make the leap from just cracking 15 in the 5K to being able to race with the top Ethiopians. The world record at the time was in the 1420s. In my ideological mind, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> Sense, you yeah. know, and I ran fifteen thirty nine and fifteen flats the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was working with Terrence Mahan at the time, and he was fairly coaching. And so, this is not a reflection on what kind of a coach he is for other people, or, or what kind of a coach he is now. Um, but at the time, it was a it was a bad combination because I was very idealistic and wanted to jump ahead, and he was like, "Yeah, you can do that." this mm. year and i was like yeah because that's what i yeah. wanted to hear right and that really set me up for the whole next year of being horrified to race and huh. you know the anxiety and stuff so, so a lot of times at the elite level like our job i don't know if you guys feel the same way but our job is to almost hold athletes back from um you know getting too too ambitious on that side or, mm-hmm. or getting in their own way so uh, I'm curious, Lauren, like, what, how do you handle that situation? Like, how do you handle an athlete who comes to you and says, like, hey, I've run 15.45 in the 5K, but I really think I can run 15 flat this year? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I basically, I, and just, I've done this wrong, just so I get that out there right now. I want people to <laughs> that, know that yeah. I've done yeah. this wrong. As we all have. <laughs> hey, that's what this coaching yeah. podcast is. Yeah. All the mistakes Steve and I made, and now you listen so you don't have to make them quite as bad as we did. Yeah, it was, it's, it just, I did this with uh, my athlete, Lawrence, a couple years ago, and you know, she wanted to make a big leap. Not surprisingly, it was an Olympic year. It's, that's when you see the most athletes going okay, it's going to take this to make the Olympic team. If I'm going to do this, then I'm really going to do it. And if I'm not really doing it with the intention of making the team, then, then what's the point? And just some kind of poser out here. So I'm going to, and I'm, you know, obviously this is all my commentary, but the, I've seen this countless times when I was on Oregon track club elite, that, that athlete that's not quite making teams yet. So often is like, this is what's going to take to make the team. And I have to do it now. And they wrap it up in all this other stuff of like, what I'm doing doesn't matter unless I'm making teams. And I think there's this big myth that if you do all that, that's what it takes to make a team, right? (laughs) Um, Definitely. And maybe that works for some people. I'm sure there's success stories out there. But what I've seen more often is a total implosion, most often leading to injury. So the athlete never even gets to get to the starting line healthy. Um, and if the athlete gets to the starting line healthy, cause they're gifted with incredible durability, then it leads to the race having so much state. It takes a really special kind of brain to get to the line in that environment. You can only think of from people I know, Ian Dobson, when he told me, when he made the thing of 2018, he said, he told himself, well, I have to make this team or I'm going to die basically. <laughs> <laughs> and He wrapped everything into it and it worked and he made the team. Um, But I think uh, Blankenship employed the same, same mentality. He said, I got the team or I'm going to go back to wherever and go work in a coal mine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) and that, that works. But I agree with you. It's a little too like militaristic in my mind. You know, it's like, 
at the end of the day, it is just running. It is just sport. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. And it probably depends on your capacity to really believe that. Um, Cause you can say those words. And if you don't really, if you haven't really gotten yourself to believe it, you're not going to um, elicit the hormonal response of the old lady who can lift the car because someone's trapped under it, right? You're, that's what you're trying to do in those situations. If you're trying to psych yourself up for the race with like a do or die mentality, you're hoping to get the old lady who can lift the car scenario mm-hmm. and that your race, you're going to be able to do something extraordinary. Um, but I don't know the physiology and Steve, maybe, maybe either of you knows this physiology, but I imagine more often than not, it triggers like a hormonal response that doesn't get you to the finish line or an underperformance kind of a situation. Yeah, no, it definitely does. It's, it's so interesting. Like the stress response is such Mm. a complicated and fascinating phenomenon. People think like, Oh, if I just get some like adrenaline going and then some testosterone comes and then like, I'm going to be able to lift that car. And Mm. what they're forgetting is like the, the mind and the body is smarter than like you think you are. Right. So it knows it knows like, hey, if I don't do this, like this kid under the car is going to die. Right. But it's incredibly tough to like trick your mind into thinking like, hey, if I don't do this race, like my world is going to end. Like your your mind knows like, hey, this isn't reality. (laughs) Exactly. And in the instance of the woman with the car, she wasn't even she was just thinking about like what the local foliage looked like (laughs) before the car landed on the kid. So it's not, it's different. Whereas an athlete, if they're trying to do this, we're talking days, weeks, months on end of creating this scenario of a, of the car on a kid. Right. Yeah. I think it's a bastardization of what's really going on physiologically. And that's shock. That woman is shocked. And we know in shock that a flood, not just a trickle, a flood of hormones instantaneously goes into your spinal cord and flushes your whole body, right? And so shock can last for, depending on the severity of it, seconds or even minutes or even hours, right? I've known athletes who broke their foot on a steeplechase barrier and like, coach, it's fine. I feel fine. It's not a problem. And I'm like, dude, your foot is the wrong way. It is broken. And then they look down at it and the shock's already going subconsciously because they didn't look at it. Then they start screaming once they see the foot at the wrong (laughs) angle. But the foot was already like that, right? Because that shock, the body just naturally had it in place. So cognitively, once your executive functioning capacity happens in your frontal lobe to make that, you know, connection, oh, I guess it is broken. (laughs) You know, it's too late. Yeah. And for anyone who really wants to understand the science of this, uh, Alex Hutchinson wrote a fantastic book called Endurer that is actually... I think it's out next week or the week after. So probably, up, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and explains these exact scenarios phenomenally for everyone to understand. So really suggest picking that up. Yeah, I didn't get to finish it. I was n- having a newborn, but he sent me an early copy oh, nice. to read through. Um, and I was, I got through about half of it so far and it was really illuminating. Like I definitely have taken things into my coaching from that too. So that was a good suggestion. So veering back on track after we've gone, you know, on the off ramp here, (laughs) (laughs) as we're known. (laughs) (laughs) So talk more about what you learned, um, you know, working with Roland, like one of your biggest takeaways from him, you kind of have already expounded the respect and, you know, the, the weight you have for the training program. But what about with Mark as the person and also through the environment he created or had created at OTC in your time there and any transfers you've had to your current practice. 
Oh yeah. I mean, it's part of the lessons I learned, uh, came from watching him coach, which I was then old enough and had been through enough coaches to be able to, to watch him coach and to think the coaching a little bit more versus just going along, uh, going along and just checking boxes. And I'm a naturally curious person. So I was studying as I was being coached by him, but also just the changes that I went through as a result of the way he coached. And I had very good self-awareness by this point. You know, I'd been, I was, uh, 28, right? So that's kind of a natural time window of your life, late twenties, early thirties, when you develop a a lot more of your self-awareness and perspective and whatnot. So I was doing that while he was my coach, which was, which was a good combination. Um, he really treated his athletes like adults. So that was one of the biggest things I took away from it. He kind of had the perspective Mm. of if you need babying, you're just not going to get it from me. I'm sorry. Like Mm. you might run like shit for two years while you figure out how to be a grown up. And I'm willing to look bad as a coach if that's happening. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because in his mind, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but in his mind, you needed to have ownership of your own athletic career, ownership of your own dreams. You weren't waiting for someone to tell you what you were capable of in order to reach your, your just in eventual potential. And he wasn't willing to hold your hand and fill in the gaps for you to get short-term results. He was like, if I'm coaching you, I'm coaching you to your ultimate potential. And this is just the unfortunate thing that's going to have to happen for a year or two while you figure <laughs> it out. And so some athletes left, you know, or it didn't work. Um, so he's not the coach for everybody, but one of the things I took from that was, I don't want to be the coach for everybody. Like I, I view coaching as partly helping someone realize their athletic potential, also helping shepherd them as into adults and people who will be able to take as much from the years they've spent with me into the future, whether that's to be a coach or to be more effective in place or in their relationships or parenting, like to take that self-awareness and, and, and things that they've developed in themselves that sport was the vehicle for and take it, take it to their life. And so, yeah, I'm a firm believer that the, the only way to, to really follow through with that is to coach people to be adults. Um, Mm -hmm. And so some people come in to be coached and they already are pretty much adults. And then some people, they need a little bit of, of tough love or nudging or whatever to get there. Um, and with the case of, I look at like Lawrence is the athlete I have right now is healthy and she's doing well. Um, I'm coaching her sister Collier Lawrence too. She's also a great example of an adult, um, who's had nuclear surgery. So she's, she's, I think five months out from that right now. So she's not training or racing in a significant way yet. I've worked with her for, I think four years. And when she first came in, she couldn't have told me really what her goals are. Um, she, she couldn't make decisions on the fly of how, you know, if I told her do six to eight times, I asked her after six, do you think you should be done or not to engage athletes with those decisions? She wouldn't have been right. able to tell them. Um, there's a big part of her still trying to please the coach or look for, uh, um, and so now where she could train anywhere in the country and be able to look after herself, be able to make those on the fly decision most of the time. And I don't think anybody can do it necessarily. Very few people can do it all the time or you just coach yourself. Right. So there's people that can, but it's very difficult. Um, but yeah, she's, and and I, I think it's, it's really showing it's, she carries herself differently. She carries herself with this confidence. 
she can talk about her goals as if they're hers because they are. Um, and I look at my job as to, to, that she's driving the bus and I'm the passenger and I'm helping her get there. And that is the way that I like to coach the most. And that's, um, and I, I'm really starting to see the fruits of the labor in how she is enjoying herself and her ferocity, you know, I mean, right. when you're on the track, it's all you, no one can help you. <laughs> it is <laughs> yeah, you. That's, and the beauty. End, that's what, that's what we're training you to do. Yeah. So, um, it's hard though, you know, and I, I am fortunate in that I'm not relying on funding dependent on short-term results. I do this because I love it and I care about these people. And so I can do it in the way I want to. I can look, I can play a longer game mm, and I totally yeah. recognize that that's a privilege and not every coach has that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a college level, that's one of the reasons I wouldn't want to coach in college because I feel like you'd have to almost stunt the development of athletes for short-term gain in the most competitive D1 programs. Like I can't, I at one point got offered a, um, interview to, for a Stanford job. And I was like, I do not want that job. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want that job. Well, that's um, why, I mean, you know, you, you kind of, you have two feet on the ground and you know what matters. And I think you, you articulate that very well, Lauren, like you're able to play a long term game. And I think that's the special seat you occupy and Steve and myself, since we're not dependent on, you know, funding from an outside, you know, bucket of money that says you have to do this and show your worth in this quarter or in this year. Otherwise, we're not going to re-up or re-engage you. And that creates a scarcity mindset, right, mm-hmm. from everyone involved. And here now, I, mean, I was talking to an athlete today and I told her, like, hey, look, I know you're uh, wanting to cross train. Like, you know, you have a new athlete and she just showed up with a stress fracture. And I'm like, look, two days before you go see the doctor and get the, you know, professional diagnosis is not going to make or break 2020. And she was mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? I go, that's what I'm thinking. I'm already thinking in 2020. It's, you know, I'm thinking three years ahead. I'm not thinking about the U S championships indoors or outdoors this year. I'm thinking long-term with you. Cause that's why you're here. That's why you've, you know, chosen to sh- show up and do this, not for the immediate gratification, but for long-term sustainability. And I think, you're right. People look to college co- programs and criticize them. And maybe Steve, you can articulate since you are actually still in the college space about the short termness that happens because you have to produce and get the athlete ready for cross indoor and outdoor and do that programming for three, four, you know, or a fifth year, you know, if you do redshirt them and, and we don't have to, which is a very special privileged seat that few, you know, occupy. Yeah, it, just speaking from the college side of things, it's, it's completely unsustainable and you do have to make sacrifices. Um, if you choose to try to run well cross-country indoors and outdoors. You know, I was talking to a good friend and fellow coach who basically said, told me, is like, I, I don't care about indoors. Like, we don't go after it. And we're kind of similar um, here with my guys at Houston because – like, it's just impossible. Like, physiologically, it's impossible to be sharp and ready to go all year round. But at a lot of programs, like, it is necessary, right? Because they expect you to do well at your conference meet indoors and make nationals and then come back outdoors and do the same and then do well and cross. So the the system itself is not set up in a way that um, is for athlete development. So if, if you have that athlete who might have the talent to run on the next level, 
it really comes on the onus of the coach to figure out ways how to protect that athlete from the system, which is a, a strange, thing, strange thing to do and um, kind of indicative on uh, NCAA uh, running in itself, I guess. I remember that too as an athlete and it created a lot of really weird team dynamics because mm-hmm. there were the athletes who were being protected and saved and then there were other athletes that had to show up and run Mountain Pacific Indoor Championships who had been footlocker finalists, who had been state champions in their own right, but in the new pecking order, they were the ones that, you know, the head track and field coach needed distance runners who could get points and they wanted the the best ones. Um but they could get the second best ones um, or the fifth best ones and they go and they get those points. But in training and for those races and competing, it it was like the barrier for those athletes ever reaching the top tier, you know, it's like they Mm -hmm. got stuck there. Um, And that was just one of the painful realities of the sport because they knew it, you know, the athletes that got to run top seven on the men's team especially like what 40 guys or something at stanford when it when they got the 24 points at nationals or whatever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they had so many guys and they were all so good and if you were the guy that got chosen to run the regional meet which no one cared about at that point because they were so dominant you knew you weren't going to run nationals you weren't going to get the shot this was your shot this was you know you were the pinch hitter or whatever um Mm -hmm. to save the legs of the other athletes so yeah i don't know it's strange but it's (laughs) it's (laughs) It's just the, the the way it is when in those deep programs, and that's one of the main reasons. I you know we're not really talking completely about college right now, but um, I am a huge advocate for not going to those top few D one schools that are so deep where you're not going to get the the true opportunity to develop uh, unless unless you just feel so compelled to go there. If you're on the fence at all, I'm, I would tell athletes to. Be open-minded to more options. Um, yeah, so. I think I'm I'm right there with you, Lauren, because I think, you know, there's amazing coaches and they have amazing facilities and amazing resources, but the coach-to-athlete ratio is only so, you know, so high. I mean, or actually more so low. Even though they might have, you know, all these coaches in the world on staff, it's still a pecking order. And, you, you know, you only can have so many alphas in a, yeah. you know, cohort before – Someone has to be submissive. And so you, you recruit all these alphas, champions, national record holders, state record holders, state champions, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then the unpacking order of submission has to come into play. And mm-hmm. what ends up happening is it suffocates that alpha who was blossoming in high school that now no longer has the soil and the fruit to do so. And that career has come to an end. And it's, it's no one's fault. It's not like, you know, I'm not, I, I don't have the hubris to think I can coach a cohort of, you know, 20, 30 alphas myself, even, you know, professionally. Like I'm hovering around 15 and that's kind of it, man. That's my threshold. I can sustain probably, you know, a, a, a cross country team, which I, which I call a, a front seven and a back seven. And even then there has to be pecking order as well with, you know, these men and women's livelihoods and careers are on the line because you know you're just one person and yeah tara welling astutely took that path she turned down going the um you know power five big school route for like lmu which is in the wcc but you know her scott her coach scott guerrero at lmu gave her all the attention you know he was able to really focus on her and very prudently and meticulously build her mileage up she didn't get hurt that much i mean it's the thing she always points to is what propelled 
her to be able to have a professional career and sustain it and also be resilient and come back from these injuries versus many times, you know, you see that athlete who went to a power five school and it's, again, it's not that the coaching is bad at all. It's not, it's actually very, very good. It's the rigors of high level performance, having to score at conference meets three times a year, having to be ready at regional meets twice a year and having to score at championship meets three times a year. That's a lot of times a year to be on. And you and I know, Yeah. It's like confidence is the other thing that gets sacrificed is it's really, I feel like the, uh, the ability to go to a program and feel good about what you're doing and feel like you matter probably carries you a lot further than the specifics of the training in some ways, as long as you get about 90% right on the physiological side, the other side of it is, is really important. Just, just as an important aside, only add this because it's, I think it's important to add perspective and I know you guys wouldn't disagree with this, but, um, all those athletes that came to Stanford that got kind of maybe you could argue got chewed up in that program running obviously is not the end of the world. And the only thing that matters Um, and seeing the things that they went on to do, the doors that opened to them in their classrooms and in the clubs and other things that they then dove into because running wasn't doing for them what they thought it would clearly set them on a different path, but like a really great path in most of those cases right so um i look at some athletes where i'm like man it was still the perfect choice for you Mm -hmm. as a career person and as a human being um even if it wasn't the perfect choice for the running dream that you had so Mm -hmm. that can happen too yeah that's a good question sure um i have a question about uh coaching (laughs) we're on coaching yes well that's great so i have a question on coaching um so i have gone gone through a transition this year in my approach where i am doing less of a long fall build fall and winter build Mm -hmm. and doing more i don't know i guess you'd call them like legit workouts uh harder workouts earlier in the season and it's a first for me. Um, and in, in the past, I've really waited until March. Um, and the, what changed, just so you know, what changed my approach has been uh, the lack of opportunities available for racing. And right. what I learned the hard way was if you're not coaching an athlete who's making teams, if they don't run well early, then they don't get into the races. Mm-hmm. They won't even get a lane in the races that allow yeah. them to reach their potential. So yep, then correct. they're in a position <laughs> yep. all year <laughs> to be trying to reach the potential from the front, um, yeah. which is just so hard. And so I've all, I had a huge bias against doing this for a really long time. But then in looking back in my career, Providence College, Ray Tracy was an example of a coach who always seemed to have athletes running really well year round. They may not run that much faster out at outdoor nationals than they do at indoor nationals, but if you're running under 50 minutes indoors. You don't like who's to say that it's a negative <laughs> right, thing. If you're right. not running that much faster than sub 15 mm-hmm. <laughs> outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an athlete that always puzzled me when I'd compete against people like Kim Smith or Molly Huddle, I was like, how are they so damn good all year long? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I just read, I got an advanced copy of Dina Castor's book and, um, and I saw some themes in there and then reading or looking at, uh, Jerry's group and how a lot of those athletes are able to run well early and often. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll peak, you 
like Courtney Frerichs, who has like this incredible jump, oh, yeah. at the mm-hmm. absolute best race of the year. But they're they're also running well. You know, someone like Shalane Flanagan is running well all year. Um, so anyway, I am doing some experimenting this year. I'm nudging things a little bit and 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 doing less of a big base pyramid model. Um, right. And I just wondered what you guys thought of that and it, what your experiences with that have been. Steve, you want to jump in first or you want me to go? I'll jump in. Sure. Um, So, you know, my experience on the professional side is I've moved more towards uh, of that model of being pretty dang fit for most of the year or being fit enough to race pretty well. So if you look at uh, our training for most of my post-collegiates, it's what I'd call like a blended or mixed periodization more than like a pyramid. So instead of like building blocks on top of each other, like stuff is always included. So we're always running somewhat fast in practice. And sometimes like the workouts are are relatively intense from the get go. Um, So I've, I've in the modern world of professional running i think it's almost a little bit of a necessity especially if you have to hit some times right what Mm -hmm. i've what i've done to kind of safeguard myself against that is i've built in like what i call like refresh periods where i'm like okay like we're gonna be really ready to go maybe at the first stanford invite so we can get a fast 5k but you know i'm gonna build in this like two and a half week period where i'm gonna go just back to like straight aerobic stuff just to make sure that we're good and can sustain it um that being said, what I've I've noticed uh, on the younger level, maybe the college level or just out of college, is that like you have to spend time almost having a little bit more of that traditional period because they have to they have to have that foundation um, before we can kind of get to where they can handle that intensity year round. If that makes sense. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of more of like a macro period because it makes me think, you know, Mel is 28. Uh, and so she has spent, if you look at it, instead of by the season of a period of a, a big base and then this middle area and then the peak, you look at it as she's already spent 10 years building the bottom of her period. Right. Um, <clears throat> cumulatively. And so you heard like new yeah she can do more of this blended training because she has those years under her belt and that also makes sense why so many of these examples i've seen are are in professionals not necessarily collegiates and in particular the older professionals that are able to do this yeah i think you got to uh, develop a musician mindset and i always um communicate to athletes i work with you're out gigging you got to go gig for shows like someone says hey we got an opening here and you can play your song go you play and no one's going to come to a concert or come to you know a little acoustic theater to hear you not be able to play your best and so we developed that mindset of i gotta be able to gig so i gotta like you said i have to show fitness to get the lane and then once i get the lane i gotta do something with that lane and you have it's a sustainable cycle that you need to be able to replicate year in and year out with that mindset you know you don't go to a concert and the you know, oh, well, they sung really well at this one, and then the next day they had laryngitis and they couldn't sing at all. There is some, you know, repeatability there. And that, I think, for the professional athlete, that's the game. That's the world you live in. And with that mindset, we know, again, homeostasis, when you reach that new level of stasis, if you can maintain and not get too greedy and not overreach, well, yeah, you can you can have a certain degree of competitiveness 
for a sustained period of time. I, you know, I'll happily point to like Daniel Herrera, who, you know, broke sub broke four minutes for the mile on the track, you know, once every um, month for three months straight. You know, he was in that sub four fitness for three straight months. I mean, he competed last year, you know, almost 30 times from March Mm -hmm. to October. Didn't get hurt. You know, not a lot of variant. He was just kind of in that four flat to 356 type mile shape. Or you can put on the 15, like 339 to 342. And I mean, yeah, he'd, you know, lay some eggs here and there because he's human. But people knew they were going to get this product when they signed him up for a race. Like, hey, can you come here and set the national record for Mexico? Hey, can you come here and try to take a shot? Yeah. Hey, can you come here? And I think you just have to understand the economics of the sport in that regard as well as a coach and as an athlete. I think it's just having the courage to know, too, that your athlete is ready for it and capable of it and then veering from that very comfortable pyramid base thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that all of us have been taught and shown. Well, I think it's really useful for youth. I think it's very valuable for my young because you're developing a young physiological being that's still growing, right? And so if yeah. you know, I've famously said before, if you give me a person where their hearts and lungs are getting bigger every year, I'm going to look like the best coach in the world can do anything because that's just you know it, those things are growing rapidly. And um, but I think that's the more prudent and traditional route to set the athlete up for sustained competitiveness or sustained enjoyment in the sport to take that big pyramid approach but you know once you get to the big leagues man you've got to be hitting daggers at the season opener kind of how mel was like i was there i watched that race mel looked awesome i was like yes finally <laughs> this is gonna I'm, I'm excited for her man you know it's, it's like she just looked in another world like she was at home the track was her space and she knew exactly what she was going to do and she got it done and i mean i'm sure that's a long time coming um, you know, from your perspective and hers, but it was great to finally see the fruition. And you actually just reminded me of something. Sorry. Um, oh, go ahead. I, I was just thinking about, I saw some evidence of my growth as a coach after that race, because when I was first starting out, I used to have a, an athlete would have a performance and I would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about the performance with that. Um, and I would, I don't know, I would kind of couldn't even really follow my own train of thought sometimes because <laughs> I was like trying really hard to get them to take as much from the race as possible. It was like over explaining in a book, you know, you're trying to read a book and they're over explaining things instead of letting a reader do some of the mm-hmm. uh, figuring out for themselves. And as I, as the years have gone by, I've gotten more and more uh, comfortable leaving things unsaid and simplifying what I leave the athlete with. And I've, I've noticed that I've been doing that with her in uh, workouts. And also after that race, I took some time to think about what I wanted to say and did less of just the verbal exploding. And I was like, you know, how can you, how can you make um, every venue you go to feel like your home venue? Like that was kind of the takeaway I left her with from that race. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause it, like you said, it was her home venue and you could tell she was in a whole other level of comfort. And so just kind of leaving her with one task this is an early season race. We don't have to over celebrate and be crazy excited and add all this extra pressure or project forward into what's now possible. Instead, let's just like treat this like a workout, treat this like yeah. one day in the year and let's figure out what you can take from it that will help us move forward. Um, 
and again, I keep plugging this book, but Dina Castor's book, if you guys are going to love it, if you haven't read it yet, um, it's not out yet, but it's, I think it's called thinking my way to victory. Um, it's all about the mental breakthroughs through specific conversations, books Hmm. and experiences that led to leaps in her career that helped her get to where she went. Hmm. Um, it's very cool. Awesome. I think about that now. I think about yeah. like how each conversation that a coach has with their athlete can can make a big difference, and I don't want to drown myself out with a bunch of extra stuff. Yeah, you're you spot know? on. I I've had the same type of growth, you know, because us coaches we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have a podcast, right? Um, <laughs> but I think as I have written more and gone to practice, like say with the daily blog, now that I'm you know producing every day. It, highperformancewest.com is it clarifies and makes my thought process more articulate and more precise and concise. And so I can just quickly get one message to, you know, the athlete in that moment. That's all I want them to walk away with, not vomit at them 10 things and hope to God they, they hear one, but just if I can beat one drum and figure that out before I speak, I found personally too, like you have Lauren, it just, it leaves a bigger takeaway for them and then they can, you know, make their own decisions based on those statements. Yeah, and they can pick up your confidence. I feel like it, it shows that you're not making a big deal out of little moments. If you can be more precise, I don't know, Steve, what do you, how do you feel about that in your coaching? Oh, a hundred percent. I think early on as coaches, like again, it's, it's having confidence in yourself as a coach too, because like early on, you kind of just do that word vomit to hope that they pick something up, right? And and it, yeah, and you're figuring it out while exactly, you it, and it's yeah. coming coming from insecurity, right? Because like yeah. y- you don't know what to say, like you don't know exactly what went right or wrong, or how to like bring them back off this you know bad race, or to like keep them going on this good race. So you just kind of vomit stuff out there and like talk and talk and talk and what happens is like we get reinforced to do that because it feels good as a coach to say something right like how many times you know I remember when I was uh my first year in college coaching like I'd give these great like post race like team meeting speeches and it felt really good to do right but then in asking the athletes over time I'm like Oh man, they got nothing out of that, right? <laughs> like it, that that was just me like making myself feel good about giving some like rah rah speech for 20 minutes. But like right. they weren't in a position to like take anything away and it was too much stuff. So, I think a lot of that is like coaches just like having that need to feel like they're doing something. And we need to get rid of that and like let you know, be precise. Like one or two messages like What's the takeaway? Okay, great. They grasp that. Okay, let's move on from it. And also have the freedom to like let the athlete explore and, you know, kind of process things and and figure things out a little bit before we try and jump in and give them some grand answer. That is such a good point too. And I always liked it when my coaches asked me first, they said, okay, well, how'd you feel about that? And they would ask me, you know, if it was an obvious huge breakthrough, there would be an enthusiastic high five or hug right away. But Mm -hmm. they would give me the same question, whether it was a good race, a mediocre race or a bad race, which was I always felt like I was being asked to take something away from it. Um, 
because I can see when I first started coaching, I would only really say that if things didn't turn out as hoped, right? That's when I would engage the athlete. But I think it's great to engage them every time because um, mm-hmm. they're, they, they're going to take away something. They're going to surprise you. My athletes surprise me with the things that they took away from it. Um, I, I do the same thing with race strategy. I don't know what you guys do, but when a race is coming up, I try to press my athletes to have a plan that they're going to execute. Obviously, flexibility needs to be there too, but to have some sort of a plan. We don't. My philosophy is not you just get on the line and you just see what happens. And I, I know some <laughs> people do that, and that works fine for them. Which I don't get because it's not like you show up to practice and you're like, "All right, guys, we're running today." Like that, yeah. that's that's the equivalent of that. It's like no, it's very you know scripted. It's very meticulous. It's planned out. It's thorough. And then you just take that out to a race, man. Sorry, a little pet peeve aside. Yeah, no, I mean, that's how that's how <laughs> I tend to operate. But I know I've heard a few post-race interviews from some of the athletes I respect most um, where it really did, if, it did seem like they were like, yeah, I just got on the line and I knew I was fit and I just <laughs> read the cues and went with it. And I believed them. And so I'm like, okay, well, that works for some people. I don't I buy it for a second, though, personally. <laughs> 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 um, I, in, in specializing in longer distance races while having a um, shorter distance race brain, but I was talented at longer distances. I had to break the race down. I had to have a plan to execute because I would just lose it mentally in the race. So I carry a little bit of that bias with me into my athletes when I'm pushing them to have some sort of a strategy and strategy. Um, it's one of the things that is great about the early season races is I don't interject when my athletes have a plan that is different from what I might've said. I'm like, okay, well this came from you. I think about it. I let it digest. Um, and then I don't offer anything until I've thought about it. If, mm-hmm. if I, I, I try not to carry a bias in of like, well, that wasn't what my idea was, so it's not going to work. <laughs> 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 um, I think, well, how did they get to this conclusion? They've done the workouts. I've watched the workouts and I've written the workouts, but they've done the workouts. So why did they feel that this is the best way to run that race? And um, usually what ends up happening is I come more around to their idea. I might make a few suggestions if I, if I feel like it's not totally on track, but, um, but I do feel like going with their idea to some degree and incorporating it to some degree is, is good. Cause then they have the buy-in. Um, and in the end it's their tests, it's their race, it's their right. career, you know? Well, I like that. It kind of ties back into, you know, what you talked about with Roland is that ownership principle and you're infusing your athletes to take ownership of how they're going to, you know, m- manifest their dream into a reality. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's refreshing to hear, Lauren. Um, I know we're going long and we, you know, a lot more ground to cover. Obviously it's great to have you on. I think hopefully Steve and I can conjole you maybe coming back for part two, because <laughs> we didn't sure. cover nearly all the things we wanted. And this <laughs> is really refreshing to hear, you know, your perspective, because I think to me, it's critical to have an elite athlete, elite competitor is, succeed at the highest level now getting into coaching because honestly like your calculus is much different than mine or steve's who as athletes never got the job done for various reasons <laughs> well don't be too hard on yourself <laughs> i never made a world meet i was never i never won a national title like you know well, it, but it's it's fun being in that space now as a cook and working with people who have that potential so it's also i, I mean i'm sure steve can apply but it's been super useful to me I've, i know i've written like a page of notes here as you've been speaking so thank you but i have one more question before we um you know let you go here you said it a couple times can you define the term woohoo 
that you've been using. Woo-woo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, woo-woo. That's it. Woo-woo. Yes, woo-woo. Woo-woo. Yes. Yeah, the woo-woo stuff is just kind of stuff there might not be um, scientific evidence for research papers written on. Um, you know, it's it's hard, it's hard to defend. Uh, it's not to say that, and I think a lot of times woo-woo stuff gets grouped into, oh, well, it, it's insignificant and wrong because you can't back it up with science. I don't necessarily feel that way at all. Um, but yes, sometimes I, I feel like there's just that mixture of things that are more woo-woo and you, um, you, you can't really defend them in traditional ways. <laughs> like a, something that's a little bit of softer understanding. It is. It's a softer thing. And it's also, it's difficult to connect with an athlete on that stuff. Um, I think I have a coach that has their, you know, they've got their science folder and then they have their woo woo folder. And if they're giving you, they're doling things out from their science folder, it's easier as late to, to like take that. Um, you assume okay. there's some academic rigor behind it or whatever. We carry those biases in. And then if they throw their brand of woo woo at you, which is like their believe in yourself stuff, or maybe it's motivational quotes. Um, maybe some of it is extremely valuable, but if it, it's riskier because if it doesn't line up with your worldview, um, it can erode the trust in the coach or it can, um, or it can do the opposite. If the active, it can, it can help grow their trust or deepen their relationship with the sport, but it takes a lot of emotional intelligence, social intelligence as a coach to communicate with athletes on that lane. Um, an mm. athlete that uses a lot of that, actually is and he's had a lot of success uh he's actually got all of the um all of the physiology background and all that but he is a big believer in connecting uh, real life stuff um, great lessons from teachers that aren't in sports to you know to the training and to the work and uh and so it can work really really well Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's, that's awesome. That's Thank you. I'm, I'm going to use that. Woo woo. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Um, I think we'll wrap it up here because we've been going for a while, although there's several other topics, as John said, love to get into in some future time. But really, Lauren, just want to thank you for taking your time. I mean, I literally have two pages of notes of uh, ideas, thoughts, and other things that I'm going to go back and reflect on and ponder from uh, hearing you share this. So it's really genuine of you and to uh, do so. Oh, well, thank you guys. I learned a lot too. And it was a pleasure to get to kind of talk through what I've learned and it just helps me out to do it. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to learn from you guys and to <laughs> to figure out what I believe in. <laughs> well, great. We appreciate you sharing. It's some, some people, you. you know, are a little attentive to do so, but I think that sharing is caring. And when you care, <laughs> you know, you share. So I appreciate it, Lauren. <laughs> Thank you.